Well, that's described in his book, 1969. So people talk about frontside mechanics, but basically there's nothing new. And number one, there's no frontside without a backside, and there's mm -hmm. no backside without a frontside. They belong together. There's no, <laughs> there's no takeoff without a flight phase, and there's no flight phase without a takeoff. Uh, you can't separate them. That was Hank Kreienhoff, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Lost Empire Herbs, and I want to share with you how to get a free bag of pine pollen through Lost Empire here today. Quickly first, I used to think herbs was just Jinkgo Biloba you got at the drugstore, but after being introduced to compounds such as the Phoenix Formula through Lost Empire, I've been a regular consumer of Lost Empire Herbs for over four years now. The Phoenix Formula instantly changed my viewpoint on herbalism. I was literally buzzing with energy after my first dose. Within two weeks, I was noticing strength improvements in the weight room, and it's been fun expanding uh, my herbalism regime to different things throughout the Lost Empire Herbs store. In Phoenix Formula in particular, along with Shiliagit, which is a very popular herb for strength and performance, you also have pine pollen, which is a superfood. It offers a variety of energy, health, and performance benefits. And you can grab that free bag of pine pollen with the modest cost of shipping by heading to justflypinepollen.com. If you want to check out other herbs that I enjoy through Lost Empire, you can head to lostempireherbs slash justfly and grab 15% off your order. I can't recommend Lost Empire enough, and I really enjoy the fact that I've been able to partner with them through this podcast for as long as I have. So be sure to check that out. Let's get on to the rest of the show. Welcome to another episode. Great to have you here. Today's podcast features guest Hank Kreienhoff. We've had Hank on way back uh, around episode 20 and 120, and it's awesome to have him back on the show. He has decades of experience as a track and field coach team sport preparation coach, and he's worked with track athletes such as former 60-meter dash world record holder Nellie Kuman, Merlin Adi, who is running blazing fast into her 40s, Troy Douglas, as well as elite team sport competitors. Hank is brilliant on many levels, such as physical and mental coaching, stress management, technology, as well as training methodology. For today's episode, Hank will dig into speed training through the decades and how many perceived new school elements are actually older than we think they are. And then he'll get into some philosophy that's really timeless, uh, talking about systems, how do we believe what we believe about coaching, training, thoughts on technical models. This is an episode that's really a bedrock of philosophy for athletic performance. Speed training is the easy one because that's a very clear and present skill, pretty much across sports as well as track and field. But what Hank is going to talk about today has implications for pretty much anybody. It's always great talking to Hank. He is so well-read, has achieved tremendous success in the coaching realm, and is just a great guy to chat with. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Let's get to episode 344 with coach Hank Kreienhoff. Hank, welcome back to the show. It's been a long time. I'm really excited to have yes. you back on. Okay. Thank you. Well, it's exciting to speak for your podcast as well, you know, after such a long time. Uh, I barely remember how Zoom worked after COVID was <laughs> over. I, I forget everything. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I know you couldn't uh, with. I know you've returned to coaching again. So clearly, you couldn't have. For, you know, with with forgetting things. I think it's interesting with probably taking a hiatus, a break from in person coaching, then just reading and studying, and then getting back into it. I, I'm curious. Tell me a little bit about your return to coaching. Like, who are you working with, and uh, how did that come about? 
I was leading a kind of a cool and happy life. When my last uh, athlete I coached, uh, we quit after the Olympics in 2004 in uh, Athens. And then 2018, after 14 years, uh, my ex-athlete, Nelly Kuhlman, she was a world record holder in the 60 meter and two times world champion, six time European champion in the 60 meters. And uh, she had a daughter, or still has a daughter, of course. And uh, I know the kid from a baby. We're still good friends with, uh, with uh, Nelly as a baby and well, didn't see much and in her as, a, as an athlete. She played field hockey, horse riding, played tennis, swimming, all kinds of sports for a short time. And then all of a sudden, uh, well, she wasn't allowed to do track and field until she was 17 or 18, and then she could make a choice. And she said, well, I want to do track and field. I want to sprint like you, mom. Okay. Then Nelly called me and said, Hank, can you look at my daughter? Is she talented? No. All kind of testing, reaction time, jump test, everything, and relate her data to other athletes. Telling the athlete, wow, unbelievable. Really, really good conditions. And... uh they said, but it's all meaningless if you can't sprint. So I took her outside and uh, on the on the sidewalk and, well, said, okay, go from here to there, sprint. And the, and the kid was flying. I was really flying. Then I, I said, Nelly, Nelly, come have a look. Am I crazy or is this really good? She said, no, I think you're right. I think it's really good. We never told her how to sprint. Nobody tells you to sprint until you start to go to, to run track. So. Okay, then you say, yeah, it has talent. So that's that for me, that was the end of it. And then after one week, Nelly called me, Hank, can you coach? Her name is uh, Ronel. Can you coach Ronel as well? I don't know many coaches. I only know you. But, well, I think one Kuhlman in my life was more than enough. But, well, let's try. See, number one, the moment I go to the track and don't like it anymore, I quit. At that moment, I quit. So well, one time I go to the track or don't even go to the track because I'm I know this is not not my thing anymore. Then, then that's it. So that's that's kind of a risk. Well, it's four years later, and I'm still standing, uh, <laughs> getting blue in my face. <laughs> still standing on the uh, standing on the track uh, six days a week, uh, at least not the whole day, but a couple of hours. Uh, my time I spent coaching her, and uh, that that how it. Uh, you know, she's a very very smart girl, one of the smartest people I ever met. That's a, a nice coincidence. She's studying exercise physiology or human movement science in the University of Amsterdam here. She's a very nice uh, uh, person, very helpful, very caring person, almost uh, shy, very funny as well. And so, yeah, we're going along, I think, and she's a perfect uh, guinea pig for all kinds of new things like katsu or like uh, wearable resistance or the yeah. all kind of, with all kind of experiments, just like with Nelly, you know, with the biopsies at that time. Doing all kind of stuff that basically not too many coaches are doing, and trying to learn a lesson. And I take this the slow road because she has a heavy study program at the university. It's not easy. It at least takes a lot of time. You know, you have to read a book like this in uh, in uh, three weeks, and well, it, it just takes time to combine it with uh, with uh, elite sports. And then on top of that, she also started to her own um, nutritional supplement. She has her own nutritional supplement out. While well, setting up a company and getting a, a nutritional supplement approved, at least in Europe, it's very, very time-consuming. Let me frustrating and time-consuming, but she did. So she has three tasks where professional athletes only have to run and then 22 hours of rest. So that's how it came about, and I um, still feel happy about it. And 
Yeah, we do a lot of cool things together. She helps me as an assistant as well with some things. So it works well. Now, other people want to be coached as well, but I, no, one is more than enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my old days. Yeah. I mean, uh, how, uh, yeah. I, I could have asked this before we started, but how old are you now? I, I'm curious um, with, you know, with coaching now, um, how, how old are you at this point? 67. Okay. I'm 67. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And now, so, yeah. you know, after you said you kind of took a hiatus at 2004 and have spent a lot of time, obviously you're a voracious yeah. reader, learner, studier. And you mentioned taking Katsu and, and the wearable yeah. resistance into the program. Uh, you know, and even before we started recording, you talked about the process of coaching, writing, letting things settle. Sounded like you had well over a decade to let things settle <laughs> uh, but after 2004. What were some things that, yeah, what were some kind of key yeah. themes that stayed with you, uh, you know, after all that coaching and then the, the decade of kind of writing and, and what are some key themes that you brought with you into your return to coaching, would you say? Or like, or, ta- or if you want to talk about the Lila or Katsu, but I'm just curious if you, you had any new eyes with anything as you started afresh. It's really new eyes. I'm surprised that a lot of st- things are still the same. And a lot of new, I would say, brands, you would say, like in, in fitness, you have a, oh, there's always a new fitness trend uh, uh, here. One of the main things is, of course, the fact that you can film everything now. Before 2004, nobody was filming with uh, with a mobile phone. Yeah. Now you can film with your mobile phone. Even before we had Super 8 and you had to kind of and, and <laughs> take the film out and wait three weeks and there's a film. So you have much more visual feedback and uh, you can do do much more with your, with your phone, like uh, making this force uh, velocity curve and everything became more focused on technology and more focused on, on, on data, on, uh, on data uh, gathering, as a matter of fact data processing, uh, of, of course, more than before. So the smartphone took away a little bit of the human side of it, mm-hmm. the, the, the holistic side and the, and the human side. Why are we taking videos? Because we can. Not that we necessarily get more information. You only get the information from one side, from the, from the side or from the front. And uh, it's, it, it always gives a different perspective than watching real time with your eyes. Yeah. So that's uh, that's uh, one thing. Yeah, new technologies like Katsu, uh, wearable resistance, measuring EMG, and there's many more. Well, new supplements came out. No more creatine, but a lot of other supplements uh, came out in the nutrition field. In the psychology field, uh, basically nothing happened <laughs> since the 1930s. <laughs> since the happened. 1930s. <laughs> um, there's no new techniques, uh, even if we talk about front-side and back-side mechanics, but that's very shallow, I must uh, say. I just found a book here. It's like, uh, this is a famous book for sprinter. Every sprint coach would have this. It's called from Tony Nett, Der Sprint, in German it is, 1969. Der, and it says, der Sprint. Yeah. <laughs> the pooling of the body. Yeah, yeah, Der Sprint. <laughs> Training, technique, and tactics. It says, the pulling of the body through the feet. Basically, frontside mechanics, in other words. And that's already old. It, it says what had happened in the 20 years before that, before 1969, 1970. So that means a lot of things, a lot of people were already thinking about, okay, we can uh, push and we can, uh, in the acceleration phase, and extend the triple extension, everything, okay. But what happens on the front side? Well, that's described in this book, 1969. So people talk about frontside mechanics, but basically there's nothing new. 
And number one, there's no front side without a back side, and there's mm-hmm. no back side without a front side. They belong together. There's no <laughs> there's no takeoff without a flight phase, and there's no flight phase without a takeoff. You can't separate them. So the one sets up for another, as a matter of fact, uh, and they're linked. But by focusing on that, uh, true, you see a lot of people just trying to destroy the track, like trying to hit the track really hard. You see a lot of injuries, especially in the hamstring, after this trend kind of uh, came. Nobody neglected it or nobody denied that it was a front side. But most people, uh, especially since the acceleration phase is, of course, the longest phase in, uh, in uh, sprinting, time-wise and, uh, and uh, distance-wise, the main factor is still comes from the push. Try to pull yourself forward when you're standing still. It barely works. So, yeah, front side mechanics is uh, absolutely important, but there's always a, a response to something else that you see things getting out of balance then, and then everybody, oh, front side, front side, front side, and they forget the back side. And then it kind of balances out in the end and balances out again. Every new trend, if, wow, this is, uh, this is fantastic. And then they come back to normal proportion. Then we know front side is, is as important as back side and back side is as important as front side. It's as simple as that. Yeah. The, the circle, in addition to being a critical figure in geometry is also like a philosophical figure. And it's almost like if you try to say, well, it's just about front side mechanics. You're kind of cutting that circle in half. Or you think like a hula hoop spinning and bouncing down the sidewalk. You're kind of trying to have a, you know, cut that hula hoop in half. And now it's like a half hula hoop. <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny to think about that. Like I, I, it's the, it is so simple at its core. Like it's the act of running the, the basic principles are so simple. But I think, you know, and we were talking about this a little bit before, before. We start recording, but it's just, I think it's so common and easy for these technical models to come out like, oh, you must sprint just like this. And people, I think, gravitate to it because it makes them feel smarter. Yeah. They're, they're in the in. And, and, but at the same time, like this human body that mm-hmm. you're in has, it has a ancientness to it. Like whether, whether it's divine or millions of years of evolution or the combination of that or whatever your thought is there, you have this ancient miraculous thing that you're in that that's pretty intelligent, you know? And I think we want, it's just like, I don't know, we want to feel like we have an advantage by going with this model, but it, it's so simple at its core. I just think of the bouncing hula hoop and it's not, it's, you know, it, it's starting there. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's an, uh, it's an, you know, subconscious Preference, a subconscious preference to pull or to push. If you see people walking on the street, you see people heel landers, flap, flap, bam, and you see people walking on the toes and the heels are barely touching uh, the, uh, the sidewall. So they walk on their toes, basically. Is it because somebody told them? No, it's a natural preference based on their, their body's uh, design. You know, there are people who are pullers and people who are pushers uh, naturally. So it depends on, on what your natural preference is if you go against that then you might be in trouble because you try to do something where the body is not designed for so that this is a big uh, trouble and of course it well body is basically not very well designed an average person for sprinting it's not very well designed for jumping we are lousy jumpers compared to the flea the cat uh, <laughs> and the monkey we're pretty lousy jumpers so the moment your body is not designed for jumping, uh, like I always uh, say, well, jumping is for cats, not for cows. The body, the cow's body is not designed for jumping, obviously. And for human beings, even if the difference is not as large as cat and cow, but 
Uh, some bodies are just not designed for jumping, and there's people who are natural kangaroos, natural-born kangaroos. So, well, that's an important thing to to consider, an important thing that makes up your all-over philosophy. So there is no, what you say, in talk about schools of thought or schools of training, but I kind of, by coincidence, or by, by no, I wouldn't call it luck, I never saw a school uh, in my own approach to sprinting. I look at, I say, well, look at your athlete, don't look at your program. The program has to be designed according to the athlete and not the athlete try to mold the athlete according to what you think is is right or because you have done it to many other athletes. There's, of course, some general guidelines, some more or less biological rules. I've never seen uh, people running faster, leaning backwards uh, mm-hmm. like this. That doesn't happen. Or running, running backwards, it, it doesn't happen. But apart from that, uh, there's very little, well, always look at uh, the strength, the weaknesses, the limitations, and the demand of, of the athlete, uh, as a matter of fact. And that's not a school. That is many schools or no school whatsoever. Most mm. uh, coaches fall in love with their own school. Yeah, it reminds me of a scene in, uh, I think it was Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon or something like that. And Bruce Lee was about to go off mm-hmm. to the battle and his, his, his instructor was like, what is the ultimate system? And Bruce is like, no system. You know, there's these series of there's these series of answers, and I think that it it's such human nature to want to identify with. I'm in this camp. I'm in that camp. This is the model. Like this is the way. And at the same time, it's it yep. is it is about yep. the athlete that's in front of you. And so, with that, what is your process? I mean, it'd be either back in the day or now with allowing an athlete to express their own ideal technique like taking the no school or no system approach to technical acquisition because it's almost a conflicting uh, on the outset that would seem like a confliction i don't know if that's a word of of ideas (laughs) like how do you get better at technique if you don't have this one model in mind now i guess we could talk about bandwidths like you need to be in this bandwidth or whatever but i'm curious about your approach to that athlete-centered technique acquisition model as a matter of fact, I don't tinker too much with technique. Uh, sprinting is so simple, everybody can do it already. Mm-hmm. That makes it simple, but at the same time, it makes it very complex to improve. If you look at a 1%, 2% at most improvement per year of the career of an athlete, a 1%, 2% improvement in time, then you know it with two, 300 workouts a year, you're looking at a very small margin of improvement for each that you can reach in each work. Or you do, or you don't. And if you don't, then Tomorrow, you have to get that little one-thousandth of a second improvement in your workout. If you don't, then in the long term, you're doomed to fail. You never reach uh, any uh, improvement. So the, the clearest example now was, of course, this last athlete, because her mom was a world champion, a world record holder. Now, that's a clear technical model, or could have been a clear technical model. The only problem is her body looks completely different than her mom, and there's very little that makes her think of her mom. Physically, and mentally, a mom is short, muscle legs, 80% of fast-rich fibers, 40% type 2D fibers as extreme. One of the best starters in the world, uh, still, if you look back at the videos, uh, that's where she gets it. And her daughter, even if she has uh, 50% of her genes, more like a 200-meter runner, doesn't have the raw power or the, the, the raw strength or the explosiveness burst from the blocks like her mom did. So that means not only in physical sense, but also in technical sense, I have to look at, at 
well, I wouldn't even call it a model. I have to use different exercises, different drills to, to reach that goal. I think she'll be better as a 1 and 200 meter runner than as a 60 meter runner. You can always see that because if you consider the world record to be a 100%, and now you run 100% in the 60 meters, uh, 98% in the 100 meters, and then in 200 meters was way below. Well, Ronel, her daughter, will be much closer to the world record in the in the one and the 200 meters, of course, and the 60 meters will be a little less. So you can see from, from comparing to the world record in each event what your best event is or is going to be in the future, most likely. So another important thing is don't try to fix it if it isn't broken. You know, if it isn't broken, try to fix it. And if the running technique is decent, there's no limitation by mechanics like leaning, sitting, uh, heel landing, strange arm, uh, arm uh, movements. Why fix it? Why fix it? Because you, you look at the 100 meter finals, people running within a, in, in the margin, running almost the same times. And then you see completely different uh, techniques. Look at the position of the hands, uh, hands completely open, hands here, yeah. uh, the hands here, here. There's so much variation that you have to ask yourself what is right. No, what is right? What makes you, what makes you run fast? That's a very pragmatic one. And that's always, uh, that's uh, not a top down, it's a bottom up approach and not probably okay we have to do this because i saw this guy running and he was flying mm-hmm. you know because his hands were like this or he was doing this yeah that's interesting for him maybe not for you so it's a matter of trial and error as well i learned many things uh, along the line about uh, this but this is my core philosophy that it depends on the athlete it's not my personal favorite technique i don't like basically i don't like running like this yeah, serious, i like it to run like this but she's running like this, and she does it well. While force her into my idea. Well, there's no proof that it would be better or superior way of carrying your hands. That was an interesting thing I noticed in the past couple of years. Trying to figure out, and, and like you said, I want to ask you too about bottom up versus top down because I do think it's easy to uh, almost like yeah, coach from like, hey, put your you know like limbs in this position, and then you're going to run faster. Versus like, well, what's the most central? tenant that's dictating what your body how your body is choosing to organize itself yeah with the hands it was interesting i i was i, I would watch athletes and it's it's funny because if you watch athletes do sprinting drills and the mock drills they usually do have their fingers like out yeah because yeah, they're trying yeah. to it's a stiffness strategy it's like how do i resist the ground but that yes. doesn't always work when you're actually trying to run that hula hoop as fast as possible with all of your body levers and all of your settings and gearings and for some athletes, they do like Johan Blake was somebody who made it work. But, yeah. you know, that's not everybody. And, and you, you'll see a lot of athletes who are Usain Bolt wasn't like that. I think he had one hand that kind of was, but definitely not. And so it's just it's interesting to I think there's even something mental about that, too, to be completely honest. Like there's like a like a how you're producing force. Placebo like as well. It's yeah. placebo as well. Number one, how in, how important is it to to think about your hands or your knees or your feet. That mm-hmm. might be important, that might be not. But apart from that, if you think, if your diagnosis, it's not good, where on be so it could be better if, why do you think it could be better if you change it? Mm-hmm. Why is this not the most optimal way that the athletes already chose? So you have to make sure that you diagnose properly that this is not good, there is something else that should be better. And then you have to accomplish it, From go from the, bad technique, so-called bad or suboptimal technique, to the optimal uh, technique for the athlete. So how are you going to do this? And then in the end, are you sure that the improvement is the improvement because your technical model changed 
or your technical example uh, uh, changed and not just because you got stronger and or more explosive or whatever. So it's it's uh, that's the complexity of it. And of course, that's the challenge and the beauty of it as well, at least for me, it is. Yeah. With that, could you explain more about the bottom up? Like, because I think about it, well, those hands, like, I don't think Johan Blake was consciously thinking, like, to have his fingers straight, you know, like, I mean, he did it probably in sprint drills and it probably felt good. Like, I just did a podcast with Seth Lentz, a pitching coach, about, like, how we transcribe feelings or project feelings onto the run. And it's like, oh, that felt good or I I resonate with this feeling and I'm going to, I think it happens subconsciously, though. It's like, you subconsciously Absolutely. take the feeling from something you did. And and so it's interesting to see different, you know, what you see out of all these different hand positions, I think is what's the central point that's coming from is the question, right? Like, but it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't, it's not like, oh yeah, like this. <laughs> but I am curious what the bottom up factors are that you're describing. Like, what are these central points where this starts from? Well, quite a few. Basically in everything, it, it, it just happens like it happens like this. And also, for instance, one thing is uh, another uh, thing important is where do coaches get their information from? Now, I studied it a long time ago, and one of my ex-athletes now from Kazakhstan, Paul Volter, he came to Holland to my seminar, and he talked about where do coaches get their education from, their ideas, their, their concepts. Well, quite a few coaches, I learned 40% that I get it, or from Google or YouTube, mm-hmm. at least from social media, or I don't get them at all because I was smart to start with. I have those ideas coming to me from some source. Uh, I always have the experience, uh, 40%. And I think that also shows the kind of ignorance of uh, of uh, coaching. There's no real idea if you ask about it, uh, ask them about it. And, well, they can't give you an answer why they really do this. One answer they heard on uh, from the guru on, uh, on Instagram. That's basically it. So that's what, uh, well... Definitely top down. They hear it from body, uh, somebody who they think is is smarter, and he's just uh, giving you this information to a lot of coaches. The Google is giving on top and giving this information to a lot of coaches. Well, for, and you give this information again to your athlete, hoping they will do well. I look at the athlete from the bottom and say, okay, what is really necessary to make this athlete? What are the strong points? What are the weak points? What is necessary? So you first have to have a kind of a, well, it doesn't matter if it diffuse or vague a model of what is necessary to run fast. What are the, what are the distinguishing factors here? There can be quite a lot and there can be quite a lot of variation in this. And it might differ for some athletes. They have a strong point, they're very strong mentally and physically they are somewhat limited. Another athlete might be physically limited by executing a flawless technique and mental, uh, mentally strong. So you have to find out which factors uh, make up this uh, this uh, sprinting performance potentially, and there's always an X factor that you can't really say. It's not really linear summation. So, okay, I'm physically strong. I'm explosive. My technique is effortless. I run mentally. I'm very strong. Uh, I sleep well. I recover well. I have no injuries. Ever. So, I should be fast, and you're not. So. Athletes always think, well, I trained harder this year, I made more hours, I'm much stronger, twice as much in squats, or mm-hmm. I ran my tempo much faster, my technique improved, my start improved, everything improved. So this must linearly translate in a better performance, and too often it just doesn't. So this is, again, another added complexity uh, to it. 
So I never look, listen to what other people say. Not anymore. I made that mistake in the past by listening to other people and their well-intended advice turned out to be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So people say, well, yeah, no, the same thing for Coleman. Uh, for Nelly, they said, well, you should run 150s and more 200 meters for the last 40 meters because mm-hmm. the 60 meters is okay. And then she started its endurance. So you should run 150s and 200s. Okay, we did. You ran 150s and 200s. We shifted this idea. I executed it and she ran it and uh, wasn't too happy about it, of course, <laughs> because she wasn't designed to run 150s or 200. What happened? The last 40 meters, she gained a tenth of a second, but the first 60 meters, she lost three tenths of a second. So in the end, her volume and her low intensity made her lose her unique uh, strong point, the explosiveness and the power output in the first 60 meters. So in the end, the intention was good, and it sounded logical to work for over distance or longer distance, but in the end, it didn't work out at all. So since then, I start not to look at what other people think. I start to figure it out myself, making small steps and changes. If you make a big step, that's not going to work. Be patient before something, before a change works. Don't say after one week, hey, we do this new drill, new exercise, and still not a world record. So this doesn't work. You know, many people don't have the patience anymore. That's what's missing in in coaches, young coaches right now. They're not patient anymore. And that's because of accelerators, you know, the whole mm-hmm. society, everything is faster, faster, faster. You want instant result, immediate success. Next year is the world championship, so you have to go there. And nobody sees a career over 10 years or 8 years, which is more feasible than having a short-lived career and having instant success, mostly at the price of injuries as well, because you want a fair, quick adaptation of the body. Today's episode is also brought to you by Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is an online digital training portal where personal trainers, strength coaches, and gym owners can create training programs and distribute them to their clients both in the in-person space and online. The software is fast and versatile. You can quickly tell that it was created by a coach for coaches. One of the best things about it is that there's no recurring fees. There is one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I feel like with the, I guess you call it like the five second, you know, attention generation or whatever, that's the average, mm-hmm. you know, time someone's going to interact with a video or something like that. But I think that along with it's almost like exercises and technical models go hand in hand in the sense of it's very easy to have like, oh, well, this is the perfect technique in sprinting or anything. And here are some exercises to help you with that perfect technique. And usually the exercises or drills are so simple that anybody can do them. Anybody can get into those positions. And then we think we're, oh yeah, I'm coaching this person up. I got them into this position that fits with this model. But then they actually go race or or throw or whatever, jump or whatever. And it's different because there are master keys that are higher centers in the body, you know, probably that come from that bottom up area are saying, well, those drills are nice, but you know what? I have to run as fast as I can right now. (laughs) And I'm going to select what my body actually, what is going to make that hula hoop spin optimally, you know? And so I I think it's almost with that short attention, that instant gratification is getting exercises, getting drills and drills that are easy enough for everybody to do pretty decently. And it also doesn't take, it just takes one or two instructions to say, hey, just lift your knee higher, point your toe this way, 
you know, now you're doing, now you're doing it right. You know, but like you said, you know, you might fix air quotes, all these little boxes <laughs> and then you actually go do the main thing and it's not there. And, uh, and <laughs> exactly, uh, just, exactly. Yeah. the same thing, the same thing, the irony, you often see people uh, promising to get faster <clears throat> in a couple of days or a couple of hours a year, a couple of weeks. And it just doesn't happen this way. It's not that they're doing this cool new drills what will make you uh, an elite sprint roll of a sudden make you gain half a second in the 100 meters. It doesn't work this way, but that that's for the naive people who believe everything that you can see on your little screen on your phone. For people who believe that, that's, that's, that's fine. You know, you can make a lot of money doing that, selling speed or speed expert or speed specialist. But in the end, it's not going anywhere. You never see an elite athlete... Uh, Popping up from one month to another, becoming Olympic champion with one month of uh, training or even a huge improvement. So <clears throat> that's for sure not going to work. But this patience is one thing that is uh, that is uh, gradually declining. The, the patience to wait and to like a flower, where you can mm-hmm. flower instead of pulling it from the from the soil. That's not, that's one thing. Second one is that uh, when I started coaching this young athlete, uh, people oh young athlete, thank. You're an old guy. Be prepared. Your athletes are lazy and not motivated, and they're all on the, on the phone every day, and they're kind of <laughs> stupid as well. I found the contrary to all the young people I work with. I'm saying chapeau for the take my hat off for the young people because they're not stupid at all. Mm-hmm. They're not unmotivated at all. As a matter of fact, they're extremely driven. At least the ones I work with. They're really, really smart. They know what's going on, even if they're on the, on their phone longer than we are because we didn't have any. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really matter. I, I'm much more positive about the young generation than most coaches and most uh, most older people. I must say, they're different. Absolutely, there's a, there's a, there's a difference because society uh, differs. You can't expect an a Neanderthaler to survive right now. You know, you're born in a different uh, environment, so they're just. Uh, Probably more vulnerable, more vulnerable in emotional sense because of all the things going on. Mm. Everything is going fast and everything is upside down right now, politically, economically, socially. Things change. So they're a little bit more vulnerable. That's that's absolutely true. But we would be the same. People say they're now lazy. They're lazy because they just, uh, well, who made them lazy? Who invented the escalator, the elevator, the <laughs> e-bike, uh, the, the mobile phone? We did. Our generation did. Why? Because we were lazy. We were lazy. And now these kids are set up with the e-bike instead of bicycling or walking to school. Not If there wasn't an e-bike, they wouldn't have thought about it. They wouldn't have invented it. We invented it because we wanted to have an easy life and not waste any energy. And go to the gym by car instead of mm-hmm. taking a walk. Go to the gym and then running on a, on the tread or walk on the treadmill for half an hour. So no, you can't blame them. So that's that's something that that has uh, uh, changed and uh, that I think, oh, for the good, not not for the bad. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to think. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I I don't know. I do want to get back to a few, uh, question I had about patience. But yep. I'm curious as well, like, you know, I don't know if you've looked into artificial intelligence at all with like the new like GPT stuff. It was funny because I like I typed in like write me an exercise a strength training program for football in it. You know, it's like because it's not great yeah. right yeah. now, but it's I feel yeah. like in two or three or four years, like if you want yeah. a fitness program for something, you're going to be able to just go to artificial intelligence and get something that's at least from a mechanical level, a parameters, a framework is going to be pretty yeah. decent. And I'm that'll just be interesting, not to mention the fact that it's going to write 
reports for you know academic you know can write a report for you and stuff <laughs> like that and and it's just it's yeah. interesting how fast like you said the world is going fast it's getting faster and i think yeah to put kids in the shoes or your shoes in the yourself in the shoes of kids in a ever fast moving world i think is yeah it's a good place of, of empathy as well yeah absolutely absolutely I, i'm always interested in technology i'm not sh- I'm not uh shunning away from technology or being amish uh, or something Absolutely not, but I see the limitations of, uh, because technology was there to help us. Technology was our slave. The car was there to transport us, an axe was there to mm-hmm. cut a tree easier instead of try to do it with your bare hands. So technology was <clears throat> our slave. And, and here comes the, 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 the tipping point where we start to be a slave of technology. Technology dictating our thoughts, our feelings, mm-hmm. our behavior. And that's the point that... Well, if you like some uh, my iPhone uh, of my my iPhone to dictate my uh, behavior and my thinking, I look at the amount of depression, stressors, anxiety, yeah. sleeping problems, and so on, suicide. Thinking, uh, okay, where is it going? Dictating? Who is dictating this? It's your iPhone dictating you to to feel bad because you compare to people who are doing mm-hmm. well on Instagram or making pictures about their wonderful holidays, and you're sitting at home and think shit. So you get a feeling of inferiority, but it's a little bit outside of the of the topic, of course. But it is important because twenty-two hours a day, the athlete is from outside of the track, living in this in this environment. So I can do whatever I want. I have no control over what to do in the next twenty-two hours when they're sleeping, what they're watching, what they're doing with the iPhone, and how they absorb this information. So it is important because it's a neglected factor, called lifestyle or whatever, but it's outside of the track is an important part. So if that part is messed up, then you might mess up on the track as well. It doesn't look as good if you're, well, depressed because your thoughts are wrongly programmed by all kinds of anxieties and fears that surround you right now. Yeah, I know. Um... But I feel like uh, Gordon Peterson right now. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, I, I yeah, I it's... It is interesting. I mean, there was, I, I forget what the video was. I mean, I might have mentioned it on this podcast, but like first world countries have a multiple, or much, much higher percentage of depression and mental health issues than second world countries, for example. And it's like, we all have our phones. And, you know, I, I that's where too, I, a question I have for you on the list that I'll ask you here in just a second is that looking at nature, because I'm always mm-hmm. like nature, the answers, study nature, study um, like you even mentioned compared to the animals, like, I do think it's funny to think about like compared to a cat, like we suck at jumping, you know, or a kangaroo or something. Yeah. But, and I think about the, what was it? John, John Verveke, the philosopher who was also, I think at the university of Toronto, Jordan Peterson being from there, but talks about like co-opting like humans, um, like an evolutionary process, humans, like, like our tongue, we co-opted it to talk or like we think about when a human yeah. swims. Well, this isn't meant for swimming my hands. Like I got to co-opt it and figure out a way to do it. And mm-hmm. It's I, anyways, sorry, I, I'm kind of getting on a rabbit trail. I wanted to ask, I do want to ask you about nature and studying nature. But before that, I did want to ask you what you think about the idea of, and again, this being on the topic of uh, fast gratification, like give me these drills that give me instant gratification because athletes can hit these positions. And Andrew yeah. Schaaf, who's a swim coach at University of Virginia, had talked about I love this. He talked about actually ignoring and, and to basically ignoring like potential like technical issues or whatever early and just giving athletes a chance to train and get in shape for a few months and then mm-hmm. bringing it up later. Like to me, that fits more like a plant growing, you know, you're just letting it get in shape, you're oh, letting organic. it move. And then I think too, the, the private sector 
can often potentially fall prey to this because to get clients in or even at the university to get buy-in, you know, you you want to say, oh, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and here's why you need my services. You know, you want to have that like thing you can pull. And yeah, you might have some things that are wrong for sure, but it might not be a drill that fixes it. It might just be getting in shape on a certain, you know, level or something like that. So anyways, just curious um, your take on on that element of things. Yeah, I don't believe in our system of sport is different. Uh, I don't have to have athletes buy in, they come to me. So that's already really different. And not because I have something to offer them apart from blood, sweat and tears, no money, no degrees, no no job, no salaries. I have nothing to offer. Only the only thing that can be sure of, I will do my really, really best to make uh, your dreams come true as far as an athlete is and to to squeeze really the best out of you. I won't leave a stone unturned. That's the only thing I can promise you, no more than that. But most of the time, that's enough because that's what they're not, they don't want to, well, they can always study. You can be a, a professor at the university when you're 70 years old. You can be a student the rest of your life. So those things are, have a, a more longer time. You can always work until you're 70 years old in your job. But sports, elite sport, is something that you can leave for a short period of time. So for me, I don't look for buying. If you want to do something else and find a better purpose in life, hey, that's great. That's great. Sport isn't that great, to be honest. And I'm, a, I'm living in sports for 40 years, but don't forget, and, and 99% of the athletes never reach that dream of becoming Olympic champion or becoming world champion or becoming Lionel Messi or whatever elite athlete you want. It's their dream. But see how many people reach the dream. Of course, the ones that say, yeah, I had a dream, never give up on your dream. Well, it, your dream worked for you. It doesn't work for 99 uh, uh, other kids next to you. So that's something uh, to remember. I think that uh, that uh, sports, I always say, well, it's it's a it's an opportunity. It's it's life in condensed form, in a shortened uh, form. With all the ups and downs, the emotions, to learn uh, to to push through where others give up. Uh, it's a good investment, still for your body uh, for health at the later years. So you can have a well fit body and a mentally and physically fit uh, body and mind. Well. In 30 years from now, you're still having the, the advantage of having having done this when you when you were young. So, uh, as a as a teacher, oh, it's more than just a medal. A medal is important. We do everything for a medal, but there's also a human side, there's an educational side, there's a health side, there's a mental side to it as as well. I would never have a say. Okay, I would never exchange one of my athletes' silver medals for gold medals, but pay the price of being mentally, mentally or physically wrecked by my workout. But that's not a price I'm willing to pay. So you can be sure of that. My athletes are seldom, seldom injured. Uh, we try to nip it in the bud and to prevent it by the choice of exercises, for instance. Yeah, that's that's good stuff, Hank. I know. Um, I remember when it was Scott Prohaskan a while ago was talking about some athlete he was working with who. I don't think every athlete is like this at all, but like it was like the day after this athlete won a gold medal or something and basically this athlete yeah. was depressed. So it was like this big and I don't think that's completely uncommon. I think there's some athletes that where it's great, no. you know, and, and but it's also it's almost like this thing where it's like, you know, a lot of pressure and we're building and oh when I finally get this thing, then I'll you know, then I'll be happy or whatever, you know, and it's life doesn't always work that way and the the process is Ellen so works key. that way, <laughs> fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was listening to a podcast. 
it was uh, David Weck who's been on this show had said this, mm-hmm. and this fits with um, some of the the embodiment ideals of John Verveke. But like in the body, it, it, the body is no yeah. bullshit. Meaning, like whatever happens in life finds itself in the body. Maybe it's your posture, your your disposition. But you can't go through sport like sport itself. Moving the body encapsulates everything about life, and looking at yeah. every opportunity, every practice as an opportunity to realize that. And like yeah. you said, like those lessons, that process can help you late to be a better, you know, be a better person to build yourself to level up. And, and I think it's more like, like you said, like, at, I think so often we look at, well, the gold medal or when winning the championship, but what, at, at what expense? And we always want to win. And I feel like too, I like the idea of there's the book, uh, the score takes care of itself. I think it was Bill Walsh. Like if you do build a good yeah. practice, like good you know, and you're growing that garden well, like the score will take care of itself, but it's also kind of surrendering that outcome too. Like just that term, the score will take care of itself. <laughs> and I think we yeah. don't want to win, but there's also a, a Tony Holler, a track coach had talked about this, like it's kind of surrendering the results. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Yeah. We, we always, I mean, most coaches are control freaks. They want to control coach the workouts. You want to control the, the every movement mm-hmm. they want to control. And especially now when there's the, the Technology to control by by doing all kinds of monitoring and testing and sleep trackers and HRV and and you name it um, to control the life of the athlete uh, completely. Well, the question is, doesn't really help. Does it really make the athlete uh, bad by being controlled? So, oh, I see you slept only uh, seven point forty five hours uh, uh, tonight. Mm-hmm. That's not good. That's not good. We want to. Basically, control it. This is uh, where the coaches are driven by the, the tendency to control and their own anxiety that the athlete doesn't do enough, that you don't do everything to win that uh, medal. And uh, most of the time, that, that just works paradoxically in the, the, the other way. Athletes got fed up by the control and, uh, and the management of the athlete. There's no feeling of freedom. You feel boxed in uh, sometimes. You know? You're living this life kind of artificial, like this little hamster in the wheel mm-hmm. running 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 to no end you're not going anywhere but you keep on running because there's no way out of the wheel anymore and um and keep the freedom people talk about the ownership of your performance well very few people how many athletes have the freedom to design their own exercise uh, two mm-hmm. or three athletes you came up hank what do you think they have been thinking about it that's ownership what do you think about this exercise oh fantastic can i borrow it Mm-hmm. Or could I pay rent yeah. for your exercise? Ronelle started thinking about supplements. We talked about supplements and herbs. And then she started her own company because she found her uh, found it interesting and valuable also from her study for all people and everything, for fragile people. So that's why what real ownership is. And there's very little ownership. We try to control and dominate the whole whole system, as a matter of fact, the whole interaction between athlete and uh, coach. We so I give a lot of freedom, a lot of, what I say, democracy, but that doesn't mean there's total freedom. Mm. And some athletes, you have to use the whip to <laughs> going, especially in the former days, not anymore. And some athletes, you have to, well, hold them back, basically. Are you mm. sure this is enough? This is enough. But you said three times, but look, cold, snow, by the time the risk of injury uh, is uh, is getting uh, higher than the benefit or the advantage that you get from running these two more runs, let's go. Okay, so they have to kind of uh, well surrender. So again, it's uh, finding the balance between 
control and management on one hand and the freedom and the ownership at the, uh, of the athlete uh, at the other hand. If it's like this, you control everything. They don't have to think. I do the thinking. Mm-hmm. And in Formula A, that is uh, also this joke that, oh, Hank, I think it's a, you do the running, I do the thinking. If you start thinking and I start running, that's not a good idea. But it was a joke. It never meant that, of course. Uh, they do the thinking as, as well and think with me. So, ah, we have a little problem. How, how can we solve that? And not only me to solve your problem. How can we solve this? Yeah. So you give your contribution as well. And um, it might not work for all athletes. Some athletes like this more authoritarian, this, this mm-hmm. autocratic, this, they need guidelines. They want to be told what to do. And otherwise, they, they won't do it. But they want to be told. They don't want any choice or any freedom. It depends on the personality as well. Again, there's no, there's no set here. There's no, no school of thought. It depends on the athlete again, what they need and what them makes them not feel good, but makes them run faster yeah. so they can feel good. That's actually something that I, in the past year, I started putting in my, um, my online training assessment. So everyone who signs up for or applies for online training for me, I send them an assessment and it says one through 10, how much do you want to be guided or have input yourself? Because I've started to value that okay. so much. And you realize, yes. I, I've realized that, yeah, there are some athletes who do want to just more so be told what to do and do it. And with that too, I guess you could say you could shut up, the more you shut off your brain on the, just the more you get an instinct when you're competing. Yes, that is what we want. We yes. don't want you to overthink, obviously. But at the same time, you know, I was a person personally who needed to have a massive amount of personal input into my program. And I think I actually yeah. ended up in a really good college situation where I had a college coach who, he didn't like it, I don't think. I, I definitely don't think he liked it. But he exactly, let me... Exactly, but he Asking let questions, me, yeah, for instance. Yeah, he let me do like stuff that I want. I was like, hey, can I do this extra workout on Saturday? Like, I want to do these like overhead shot put throws and these hurdle hops and he you know we went through the week and he let me do it and i think because of that i think i was able to do as well as i did it wasn't and it's funny because the two my first i don't want to make a too long of a rabbit trail here but my first like you said you can't let athletes just do everything and that's what my first two years of college were kind of like for me it was kind of a free-for-all because i was in a sports medicine program where i did a lot of practices on my own which ended up being me kind of doing whatever i wanted and it didn't work because at 19, 20 years old, I was just kind of, I thought I knew what I needed, but it definitely wasn't. And then it kind of having my junior year, it was, I would say, 80% of my coach's structure. And I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And I had good training partners, good group energy. I didn't overthink about that because I knew I got to do one workout where I got to do what I wanted to do. And for me, that yeah. was the bounce. I did so well that year. I mean, it was speed, jumping, everything was on fire. And it's yeah, just fun looking yeah. back on that year. And then the next year, actually, I got even more autonomy and then it was bad for me again. Like I needed to have, it's just that balance, you know? So it's, it's so important. Exactly. I've had yeah coaches on this podcast too, Jamie Smith at U of Strength. He's put yeah. such a priority on that for, and you know, with it too, it's funny. I would be interested to look at like improvement trends. And you said this in your book, what we need is speed is like, you'll get these cohorts of like training groups and it's very authoritarian yeah. and they are so locked in their own system. This is the way. And then when those athletes leave that system, if the coach leaves or they transfer, they never, ever do well. And it's, exactly. it's so, you think about the whole process as how am I setting you up? Like if I leave, like ultimately you shouldn't need me. I'm flattered that you want to be my coach. That's great. I hope this continues. Yeah. But you know what? If I leave or we part ways, like I want you to thrive. I want you to do better after this because we work together and, and you grew and I grew through this process and not just 
well, this is my system and it's got to be all this way exactly. You know, it's like that's, I think long term, be interesting to do that studies and, and look at how those trends played out. Yeah, yeah. If the studies aren't done yet about autocratic or democratic uh, form of coaching and look at uh, probably in team sport, it's a little bit different than from uh, individual sports, yeah. of course, because you have the, the team dynamics or the group dynamics in there as well and social pressures. Uh, individual sports, it might be a little bit different uh, as well. Would you so say more independent and uh, more, more, more democratic, more democratic yeah. for individual? Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yep. That's a good point. I think that's that's really important. You know, there was um in one of your articles you mentioned it was like the the um the Dutch soccer coach. I forget what the team Ajax the 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 coach yeah. of Ajax and like looking at the total human. I mean, I'm just I I wanted to read that you know like to kind of look at and I think that's worth bearing out too. Team sports versus individual. So total human. Of course, the idea is not new to look at. I always did look at more than only biomechanics or only. Look at anatomy or only look at biochemistry or only look at nutrition or psychology. I always took the whole package, the whole holistic, but the total human also found its way in soccer through uh, Louis van Pelle, who was the national coach uh, through the last world championships as well of the, of the national team, which is, of course, a very ungrateful job to have. <laughs> <laughs> Most ungrateful coaching job you have. So. Yeah, no, that, that's that's absolutely true. You look at the whole picture and uh, where you can improve. If it, if it's marginal, you look for improvement uh, there. You never know uh, how this uh, works. And there's some priorities, you know. I think uh, a 13-year-old cat who cannot hold a tennis racket properly shouldn't think about uh, doing how high the drop jump should be or mm-hmm. if when he should take his creatine or whatever. There's other priorities. There's priorities to set in this whole uh, thing. But again, it depends on the person, what the, what the weakest link is. You know, If it ain't broken, don't try to fix it. And Try to work on the strong points because this is the way the body and the mind is designed to start with. So that's where the improvement is, is better. And of course, you shouldn't ignore or, or neglect the, the weak points or the, or the, the limitations. That's for, for sure. That's uh, for sure. But there's always more risk involved in taking out or working on a limitation than with Things that are the body and that things that come naturally for you. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point to think about. I think it's it's been more well accepted in the coaching literature that if you're overworking on someone's weaknesses, you're, there's a good chance of messing them up. But I think it's more just like risk. Like you know, I like just put tagging that as risk. Like you can work on weaknesses, you should, but just realize that there's the more you hammer a weakness yeah. compared to the strength, there's you're at, you're entering a risky territory. It's very safe to work with someone's strengths. You know, that's their strengths. That's their thing. Yeah. And again, there's a balance because athletes always like the things they're very good at. They like to do that. And the weak points, of course, they don't like to work on the weak points. And I would like a decathlete, uh, he likes to do the pole vault or the sprinting or the long jump, but no decathlete mm-hmm. likes to run that 1500 meters uh, really fast and train for that. You know, that's against the other nine events, explosive events, but still it has to be done. Although we use you lose too many points there in the 1500 meter that could make a make a make a lot of difference uh, right there so yeah there's again this balance between what you need and what you what you what you like and that has to be in balance if you only do what you need then you might not like it uh, if you only do what you like you might not need it and you might yeah. not improve hank in coaching now what are you like measuring and monitoring via t- you know you mentioned like you know the watch the band like all this stuff what do you measure that you look at on a regular basis from a technology or data or feedback standpoint less than ever less than ever why because if you have 10 athletes it's impossible to figure out how they 
behave if they are recovered. They have only one athlete, an athlete mm -hmm. who is very open and very, you know, almost like family. And so the feedback from the athlete is, who is very smart. It's not always an advantage, but it's very, very solid. So they tell me, okay, how, do I, how, do I, how long do you, do you sleep? And she doesn't measure a lot. So it's kind of disappointing having all these tools here in my office <laughs> and not doing less and less and less. Because now I have the feedback, <clears throat> the complex feedback and the diffuse feedback of my eyes, my ears, mm. and uh, to listen to what she says, to see how she enters the track. I can now, and it sounds kind of a more esoterical old man's talk, but I can see how the workout is going to be when she enters the track. Mm. So then I can confirm it. And I always think it gives me more information. Than, and believe me, we tried everything. In the beginning phase, we tried everything to introduce her to these technologies with Omega Wave and with EMG and Brain Waves and everything. She did everything. She did everything. In the end, the reality is more complex than taking a one or two or maybe five simple factors to account and to, to make a proper judgment how the athlete is, uh, is, uh, is doing. And basically, every workout is a diagnostics uh, as well, because the way she runs, the time she runs, how she recovers, the feedback from, well, even uh, what she uh, tells me verbally, but also what I, uh, what I uh, observe after she's running. Is she uh, on the track throwing up? Is she standing uh, bent over with her hands on her knees, uh, breathing uh, hard, or is she just walking away, or is she coming back and say, hey, how was this one? It always tells you something about the quality of the of the workout. So it made it more complex, more well. If you want want to call it old school, but in the end, you will see that old school is new school. <laughs> yeah. It happens everywhere. Every old school becomes new school. We see that people measure a lot. People are taking data data from everything, especially in team sports like uh, soccer. You have all the data, but the result. Look at the result of injuries. More injuries than ever. Mm -hmm. And they're not playing much better than before. And they have massive, massive data on each player. They know everything. They monitor every single factor in the life of this. And they're not doing better at all. Because even, the, you know, it's it's like this, uh, how do you call it, choding as cats. Yeah. It, the, the presence of something changes something already. So if you start monitoring everything, then already the monitoring uh, uh, changes something uh, inside. Mm, observer effect, um, like quantum physics. They tell you. Yeah, yeah, quantum, yeah, it's like more, almost like quantum physics. Like if, if you sleep six hours and you see the coach and, hey, you only slept six hours, you slept eight hours, then it's not only the two hours difference, it's, it's the response of the coach saying, hey, my friend, you be careful because uh, you get punished for this. Because monitoring without consequences or testing without consequences is useless. And many people take data, 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 and say, what do you do with it? Well, basically nothing. Because the head coach is doing his own thing. I'm taking all those data, but the head coach is still doing his own thing that he wants to do. So useless data uh, data uh, gathering. That's number one. Number two, if you do something with the data, <clears throat> then you must be sure you do the right thing. The data is only data. It's just numbers. It's not information yet. So the numbers might give you direction if you show that the real interface the real secret is in the interpretation of the data translating it to an intervention or to a, a training session or to an exercise or to a nutrition that's where the real secret is not in taking the data every fool can take data or 
gather information from nutritional point of view or a recovery point of view or physiological or biochemical point of view, you can take blood. But then when you see a blood panel and you don't know what the hell you're to do with it, then don't take the blood panel. So this is the, the, uh, the flip side. I take it easy. Since lack of time and lack of, well, facilities and lack of, um, how do you call it, um, well, basically support, keep it as, uh, as lean and mean as uh, possible. And then you say, well, I have no idea how she's doing. I still have all the equipment to, to test her. So, but this is a very special and kind of a unique uh, situation mm-hmm. that I'm in with one athlete that I know very well and gives excellent feedback and everything. So this is, this is very unique uh, for if athletes that I don't know, I would do more testing and more, more, uh, and in the end, if you do test enough, then also a pattern comes out, you know, your athletes are always so athletes who have never, ever, so it could be muscle soreness or pain or whatever. So then some consistency comes out and you don't need to test anymore because you know you can predict the result already. Yeah, with that, that makes sense too. And one of the things yes. you said, one of the things you said there that I like a lot is, and I think about this with you know as the world gets faster, technology increases, like with the the chatbot, like that can write a report for you. The the thought is in education, well. Are humans going to forget how the, to write a essay, you know, or, or are they just going to use yeah, chatbots? Yeah, yeah. And there is something about, well, well, how do we leverage this to make our life easier, to find information more easily, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, like with all this technology, we can't forget how to be human. And it, you think about even like I, I think about like the intelligence and ingenuity of like the Native Americans here and, and, and how did they adapt to their environment? And I think that ingenuity, the same way like a native adapts their environment is not far off from how an individual may coach in the process of coaching because it's a very human and nature and organic based system. And so it's like that idea of that never coming at the expert technology, never coming at the expense of that. And also having the awareness of cultivating those abilities. And I don't believe it's esoteric at all being able to know that like that feeling like that's one of the things that makes the human brain brain still ahead of supercomputers for now is the ability to recognize like even the child's ability to recognize a face and whatever you know consciousness you want to expand beyond that you know whatever corresponds with you know someone's worldview i i think the ability to feel out how an athlete will do is so valuable but yet we i think we can so easily lose it just by you know oh well hey this data told me this so i I got that and not to say that's bad but it's you know just just always being aware of that ability number one I'm tired because my watch tells me I'm hungry because it's 12 o'clock. I should take lunch. So we depend on external data in order to confirm our internal sensations. That's number one. Number two, technologies. We have calculators now, or you make a calculation. So we forgot how to calculate by head. Now we have GPS and we have Google Maps and everything. So if the system breaks down for whatever reason, you don't have it. You can't find your way in the supermarket anymore. I mean, we got more stupid. It's not that artificial now become more intelligent and artificial intelligence all created by human stupidity. Now we got the limitation of the human. It will learn by itself. Learning process has a certain direction. It's not open learning like we have. We can learn anything. But the learning is programmed already into a certain direction. That's uh, another one. So... Yeah, uh, I, I I think we will see a nature this uh, 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 depending on data on data uh, collection. It will come to an end also in sports, and people go back to something that is in, indeed more human. 
means you said, yeah, artificial intelligence can recognize a face. Okay, it can recognize a face, facial recognition system, excellent. A child can also recognize the face of the father, mother, or uh, a puppy or something. But what is the difference? The difference is what happens next. The difference is there's a human emotion there with all its value. Uh, who doesn't who doesn't smile if you see this on YouTube at a monkey after 12 years meets the one that that's that does something to you. It doesn't do anything to a stupid computer or to a stupid uh, calculator. It doesn't do anything. It's it, it's uh, missing. So uh, on the other hand, our society gets very, well, dehumanized, basically. The question is, how human are we, considering the, the bad things we see around us from wars and everything and suppression and, and killing? How human are we? Maybe we need to be dehumanized a little bit, but not to the extent that computers take over, but it might not be. Well, just the fear of Asimov, you know, computers are robots uh, leading their own life and seeing us as a, as a nuisance, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and so might uh, artificial intelligence do, see, is as a nuisance. I, people who are on top of this, like Elon Musk said, it's the biggest threat there is, uh, you know, to humankind, uh, artificial intelligence. So, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this. I just see this from a, from a, a distance, like most people get information, but... Maybe I process things a little bit different than other people, but technology has had a, uh, has its uh, I think it's limiting in usefulness for 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 us. Now we have to be useful for technology. That's all. We have to fulfill the protocols to well to the, the checklists and everything. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you cannot enter an airplane. Yeah. Anymore, or otherwise you cannot. It gives only gives limitations to human beings. It seldom extends uh, things. It just limits uh, things. Yeah, it's interesting. I always am one that, at the end of the day, like, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of processing a few things. Like, like you know, I'd mentioned with John Bravicki and David Weck talking about like the body is. There's no bullshit with the body. Like it is the yeah. conglomeration of everything, and. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, I think that philosophy is found within the body. Like whatever your philosophy is, it's going to land in how you coach, how you approach the coaching process. What do you feel like the goal of all this is? And you can even look at, well, what's the goal of society? Do we have to do all these checklists so that we try to like, you know, I I don't don't, like versus like the quality of life. How are you actually, what is the process by which you're living your life versus the end goal, whatever the end goal is, you know? And um, so yeah, it's definitely an interesting space. Um, I, I do. Uh, I know we're kind of running a little short on time. I have shoot tons of questions I could still ask you. Uh, I do want to bring this to uh, nature. So I, I've in watching your videos. Yeah. I know I've seen you do a lot of stuff, work training in nature. Uh, you yeah. mentioned like the, finding the answers in nature. I'm just curious your thoughts on the role of that, like training, trying to find that as a training environment. Things you learn from like watching plants or anything like that. I'm just curious. Any any take there, Hank? Absolutely, there's a lot of things from nature. We we learn to neglect or to dominate nature and to change it and adapt mm-hmm. it to our our what we think our needs are. But still, look at it. You go to holidays. Where do you go to? You go to New York for holiday for a month and to spend a holiday. No, you go to the to the forest, to the national parks, to the to the beaches, mm-hmm. to the mountains. Okay, then in our cities, even in New York City, you still have a park. Why do you have a park? Green shit. Mm-hmm. Why do you have a park? Okay, what do you have? house you live in an apartment building a house with a garden making care of stuff stuff that lives even if it's primitive uh, you have stuff that lives why do you have a, a painting or uh, on your balcony you have plants and flowers what do you bring your wife to bring her 
give you flowers. People love flowers, the smells, the colors, the shapes, and everything. Even have paintings of flowers, or you try to make it natural. Why? Because that has been an environment for millions of years. An environment that can keep us warm, that keep us uh, 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 safe, that gives us food, that gives us uh, shelter, uh, it will protect us. So that was a natural environment that so you can take that away in a couple of decades. So uh, there's still this inborn need. It was called it nature deficit disorder. You know? And that book is called, yeah, Nature Deficit uh, Disorder. Hmm. I'll write and that down. That's, that's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting book. And children learn to detach themselves from, from nature. Like, okay, this piece of meat, well, that's a dead cow. A dead cow, no. It comes from the supermarket, you know, this meat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to do the same like daddy. Why? Because he can take money from the, from the wall, you know, from the ATM. Uh, he can take money. Oh, okay. And they don't see anymore that that probably has to work and work very hard to get money into that machine so he can take it out. It's not something that you can tap into. So people, especially young kids, are educated to, to get it. death is a taboo. When you work mm-hmm. on a farm, you need know, so dead calves or dead pigs or something and things getting born and things die. You see the cycle of life and you don't see the cycle of life anymore. <clears throat> the cycle of life completely changed in, in, the, in the perception of uh, children. So... We detach ourselves from nature, and I try to bring nature back, and we use uh, natural supplements, as a matter of fact, from yeah. plants and herbs. I think also future of health is not in synthetics, yeah. no matter how 100%. good they might be. And absolutely, I'm not against uh, plastic or medicine. If I break a leg, I go to the hospital mm-hmm. and have my leg set. I don't take a flower, uh, <laughs> put a flower on it, hoping it will heal itself. No, no, of course not. But for many cases, the plants and flowers are tremendous chemical industries uh, that we can't even start to understand and even start even why, and start to uh, to copy. They're making substances that we cannot make yet, like like perfumes from mm-hmm. the lily of the valley. We cannot make it. We can try to 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 get there, but we don't. So it means a little bit more respect for nature, and also nature, it's, it's from the change from the track, a change of environment. A green environment makes you breathe fresh air, not, uh, not uh, from, from cars or rubber or whatever uh, from the track. Yeah, it's, 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 it's good to go back to nature once in a while. And uh, as a matter of fact, we trained in the park uh, this morning in the, in the snow and going, uh, instead of going to the track. When there's snow, it doesn't really, really make a difference. Yeah, so I'm a fond of, of in- in- inclusive for nature, let me say that, uh, for nature as it still exists uh, right now. Mm-hmm. There's not too much nature left in Holland. You know, we cut all the trees and everything is touched by human hands in order to, to form it to our demands, as a matter of fact, which is mm-hmm. kind of sad. There's very little real, real wild nature left, like old growth, you see. It, yeah. uh, there's some interesting books written about uh, the disappearance of real nature. Yeah, the mycelium running. I know you had uh, had that in your library. You remember mentioning that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, hey, yeah. I, I think uh, yes. Seth, I, w- I would love that. Shoot, we could have a whole other show on that. Yeah. Uh, maybe, and maybe no, I'll you, save those questions for for later on, sometime down. No, there. wait. Uh, we, we can we can we can do we can do this again at, at uh, some uh, point in time. If you feel well, two two uh, sessions back to back might be uh, might be not very interesting, but uh, in a short period of time, I'm going to do it again. You know, I have uh, I have time enough, and uh, there's more than enough to uh, to talk to. It was a little bit outside of the field of sprinting. I understand it was a little bit. Higher level than than the solid talking about hands and 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 training, but it's more philosophy than anything else. But 
that's how it is, and that's important too. Yeah, because that's a foundation of your of your training. As a matter of fact, that's a foundation. We tend to forget that, but philosophy is the foundation. It's not a product of your training of doing going through the motions and writing down your sessions. The philosophy is the foundation. Yeah, for something as simple as sprinting too. I mean, we all. Everyone loves sprinting, you know, and it's like, well, why? It's just sprinting. Why do we love this so much? But there's so much to be found in sprinting. And I think that's why, like, understanding that and what's to be taken out of it, that's the goal. And so I'm I'm glad our conversation went there today, Hank. It was great having you on, man. Thank you so much. Yo, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. We'll see you all next week.